You may turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. When you came in, um, you might have been given one of our new sermon booklets. Those are to use for your quiet times, for your community group discussion, for taking notes during the sermon. If you did not get one of those new John sermon booklets, um, you can grab one on the way out today. That booklet will take us through the month of June in John 13. And then we are going to take a break beginning in July. We're going to do a five-week series on selected proverbs, sort of proverbial wisdom for the summer season. And then we'll be back in the Gospel of John come, come August. Now, if you've been here in this series with us in John, and we've been preaching about 15 months thus far, and we have covered 12 chapters... And these 12 chapters have captured the first three years of Jesus' life and ministry. Okay, three years of Jesus' life and ministry, his active public ministry, 12 chapters. But now we take the next, John takes the next four chapters to slow down, and he gives us a window of three hours in Jesus' ministry. Think about the importance that John is laying on this sequence of events in his gospel. Because it's been public ministry all the way to the lost sheep of Israel, appealing to the crowds and and the lost. But these last chapters are precious because it's here that God, that Jesus is giving his final words, his will and testament, his farewell words and acts to his disciples. Four chapters John devotes to these three hours surrounding the last night before his betrayal, mere hours before Jesus is going to stand trial and go to the cross, what will John disclose to us? What, what, will, he, what will he peel the curtain back and show us that Jesus wants to say to his disciples, particularly these last hours of his life? Think about this, parents. If you knew you had three hours or four hours or five hours or a day, what would you do with it? What would you say to your children? What would you say to those who are closest to you that you have lived life with? What, what parting words, what parting lessons would you want to leave with them? That's what we're asking. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you can, you're willing, able, you can stand As we read from John 13, we're going to just read the first 11 verses. This is one giant discourse through chapter 13, and we're going to divide it up as best we can. Very, very, very familiar passage. Even if you are not a Christian or haven't been in church in a long time or even ever, you might have heard of this passage. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, 
do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, only, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Let's pray. Lord, it's such a familiar passage. And for so many of us, we might have heard, believe we've heard everything we can hear from this. Lord, we don't offer up any new insight or wisdoms today, but we do trust your Holy Spirit to speak anew, to speak afresh, to make your word, which is living and active, come alive in a unique way, a powerful way, a special way. So Lord, would you do that for us this morning? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Your name we pray, amen. Let me take your seats. Verse 1 gives us the context. John says this is all happening before the feast of Passover. It's interesting that in all four Gospels, the writers go an extra mile, so to speak, to make sure we are connecting the events of Jesus' death and crucifixion to the Passover, the Jewish festival that's going on around the disciples. If you know a little bit of Old Testament history, you know that the Passover is the central celebration, the most important festival of all festivals in the life of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Because it is here at the Passover, as hundreds of thousands of, of pilgrims from, from here, there, and everywhere are descending upon Jerusalem, they are celebrating, they are remembering the great events that transpired when they were slaves in Egypt. Remember when Pharaoh did not, would not let the people of Israel go, God said, Israel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to kill a lamb, and I want you to spread the lamb's blood over the doorpost, along the frame, because I'm going to send the angel of death all across Egypt, and I'm going to strike down the firstborn of every family, Israel or Egyptian, but if the blood is over the door, the blood is over the door, it will cover you. It will cover your house. I will pass over. I will accept that blood as a sacrifice and atonement for your sin, but I will strike down the rest. And so this, this Passover event is central to the history of Israel and central to the events of John's gospel. Remember, he's marking, is this interesting, he marks all of the sequential events in his gospel by these feasts and by these Passovers. But this is the last Passover. This is when in mere hours, lambs will be slaughtered all across the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. The Passover lamb, the blood that is, is shed for the forgiveness of sins, all the while John is preparing us that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. And John means for us to understand all the things that are happening in these chapters in light of that event of Jesus going to the cross. This Last Supper is to be a symbol, it is a picture of, it's a reenactment, so to speak. It's a commentary on what Jesus is about to do. Now, if you look at verse 7, Jesus says something very interesting about this dinner and about this foot washing that he is undergoing with his disciples. Look at verse 7. He says, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. What I'm doing now you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Now, what does he mean by that? Personally, by the way, just a side note, not in the notes. I find that incredibly encouraging. (laughs) What God's doing right, what's happening in my life right now, what's happening in your life right now, we may not understand. We may not have a clue. But there's a promise here, whether it's in this life or the next, we will one day understand. But what does John mean here? Some of you are familiar with the story of Kara Tippett's. Kara... um, blogged on a very popular site called Mundane Faithfulness. Carol was the wife of Jason Tippett, a pastor in California, and I say was the wife because Tara died three years ago after a heroic fight against breast cancer. She was 38 years old and left four young children behind. And, and, and what she blogged on that site, which is still maintained and updated, by the way, by her husband, it's, it's amazing, it's powerful, bring your tissues with you, I'm just, I'm just giving you the heads up, it is, it, is a, it is a powerful, inspirational thing. But she talks about this idea that, well, actually, it's her husband, in retrospect, talking about what she did while she was alive, but Karen, she decided that she was going to write a letter to each of her children for each of their birthdays up to 18 years old. And that every year, that particular child, they're nine or they're 10, they would get a letter every birthday and they would read that letter. And in the letter, she would address a whole host of of topics or things that were going to be situational for that time in life. And so she's writing about boys and relationships and girls and the first day of school and t-ball and homework and graduation. Can Can you imagine reading these letters? All signed, love mommy. Because she knew she was going away. She knew that at that point in their lives, her children did not fully, un- some more than others, obviously, but some of them did not fully understand what was happening. But she wanted to make it so that even though she was not there physically, one day she could be with them through her words. That although not understanding now, by God's grace, understanding more later. And I think if you get that picture... I think you get a sense of how this night was supposed, to fo- was supposed to function in the life of the disciples once Jesus is gone. See, he, he's going away, but he's leaving them with his words. And Jesus is envisioning a time, and by the way, this is a model for our own scripture study. Think about this. Jesus is envisioning a time where the disciples are, are gathered like this. They're sitting around. 
They're thinking back a year ago, five years ago, or in John's case, 60 years since this event. And Jesus is contemplating a time that they're thinking, that they're thinking about those events, that they're, they're, they're holding those events in, up in light of what has happened. See, the, the disciples don't know that Jesus is about to die. But when they go back and think about this and look at it in the shadow of the cross, it's like, oh, I get it. I understand. What I was clueless about then, I have clarity about. What makes perfect sense, didn't make perfect sense then, makes perfect sense now. And I believe that's the way we ought to look at this text. And so the way I think we're going to attempt to unpack this is, is by asking, what was it that the disciples didn't understand then that now they do? What were they clueless about at that moment, like Peter, but now, because of the events, the death of Jesus, they now have perfect clarity about? And I came up with 25. And um, well, I, I, there are probably 20, there's probably 40, 50, 60. We're going to talk about two of them, okay? We're going to talk about two of them. And the first one is this. This is, again, as they're looking back, as they are reflecting. You know, we were a broken and sinful group of guys, difficult to love. So you see, the scene opens up around the dinner table, and, and etiquette is an important category for us here. You know, in a lot of ways, we've lost the art of etiquette. So to help our kids with this, we watch Leave It to Beaver reruns and episodes. It's one of the few shows that passes the filter test. And by the way, Wally is a very underrated child actor, just by the way. Okay, go back and go back and watch. Good stuff. But there, we just watched the show where Beaver has to learn some etiquette. He has to wear a tie and ask out a girl and take her to a dance and go through the receiving line and shake everybody's hand and... He has, to curtsy, he has to bow, and she has to curtsy, and he has a little handkerchief he puts on his hand to put on his, her back when they dance, like a real dance. Parents, don't, don't you wish high school dances were like this, okay, again? There was a whole room of chaperones. Everything was genteel, refreshing, hospitable. Well, the Jewish people had a standard etiquette as well when it came to meals and feasts, particularly these kinds of feasts. And... and it generally went something like this when it came to dinner time. When it says that they were reclining at the table, don't, don't get out of your mind this, you know, your, your teenage boy with a frozen pizza sprayed out on the couch. That's not exactly what we're talking about here, although I'm sure that happens plenty. But we're talking here that the people would, would recline. They would, they would lean up on one arm, and they would be facing towards the middle of the table, and the food would be in the table, and their feet would be pointed away from the table and allow them to have conversation and converse and, and, and be close to one another and be in a relaxed setting. This was an extended sort of, of meal, but they pointed their feet away for a very good reason. Okay? I kind of call it the Shaco effect, the Tiva effect. Hey, this is open-toed shoes were the rule of the day. There was no pavement. It was all dusty. Feet got nasty. And you pointed them away from the table because nobody wants their toe fungus near your lamb chops, right? That's not what you want. And it would be customary 
as the meal was beginning, that a house servant or slave would come and wash the participants' feet before the meal. And by the way, this job sounds about as enticing as being a, you know, a, a chambermaid in Downton Abbey. And if you don't know what a chambermaid or a chamber pot is, Google it after lunch today, but not before lunch, right? This is not, this is not an attractive job. This is the lowest of the low. Now, we're not sure if it dawned on them or not that no one was showing up to wash the feet. We don't know. It's certainly, and it's obvious, that it never occurred to any of them that any of them should do it. Notice that? No one was volunteering for that duty. What were they doing? It's interesting. If you read the other Gospels, particularly Luke's Gospel, Luke gives us an insight about what they were doing. At this point in time of the feasts, before the meal, the disciples are actually having an argument. And they are arguing about, isn't this interesting, who's the greatest? Who gets the seat of honor at the table with Jesus? See, these, these guys were still in a mode of Jesus is here to set up shop. He is going to set up his kingdom, and we're going to be part of the cabinet. And who's going to be central on this cabinet? I want to be secretary of state. No, no, no. I want to be vice president. I want to be, you can, this is, this is what they're arguing about. They were preoccupied with how they could elevate their lives and their positions through Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, was preoccupied with something else entirely. Look at verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus knew he was about to die. Jesus was preoccupied with something else entirely. Jesus, in light of this knowledge, is thus spurred into action. Now, let me ask you a question. When you are consumed or preoccupied with something, how do you respond? Let's just think about this. Maybe there's some conflict at work going on right now or conflict at at home. Maybe there's some financial situation. Maybe there's a, a health diagnosis, something that's consuming your thoughts, something that's preoccupying you. What do you do when you're preoccupied? You know, some of you might sleep. Some of you might fret. Some of you might not sleep. It's more likely. Maybe you get super-duper frantic. Maybe you just sort of turn up the volume and just keep going and keep your head down. Some of us, and I do mean us, we love to eat during these times, okay? And so, so you know, Joe LeBlanc always buys the snacks for the elder meetings, and she'll keep it in my office, and she'll come back. And there hasn't been an elder meeting since the last time, and the snacks are halfway gone. It's like, what has happened? Well, worry has happened, right? Preoccupation has happened. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. That's what I go to. What do you go to? Whatever it is, I guarantee this. For almost all of us, the last thing on our mind is serving someone. The last thing on our minds is loving someone. The last thing on our minds is doing something for someone. Again, this one's not in the notes, but, but here's one for you. A lot of times, we value authenticity as a culture, and that's great. 
where we are, what we're doing, where we're struggling. But so often that can become a reflexive process where we become inward and we withdraw and, and we sort of get into this special zone of say, well, I don't need to be a part of a community group or part of a church or relationships when I'm going through this struggling time. You know what? Oftentimes the very best thing for people who are, who are wrestling with whatever is just to go serve. Just go be a part of the community of believers. Just, just use your gifts. Think about someone else. And that's what's happening with Jesus. See, Jesus is preoccupied with thoughts about how to serve these men. It tells us that he's preoccupied with how he is going to love them to the end. See, he's been loving them. And it says there's still love to be given. There's still service to be rendered. And let's be honest, these are not easy men to love. See, one of the things that we often miss in this story is who exactly feet is Jesus washing? Look at verse 2. It says that, that Satan had entered into Judas, that put it into the mind of Judas to betray him. It is almost certainly true that Judas at this point is still residing at this table. Judas who will betray him. Judas who will merely hours after, I mean, I'm talking minutes after this, will go run and tell the chief priests and they'll come and arrest Jesus and in a scam of a trial, Jesus washes his feet. Peter, let's think about Peter. This is a bad night for Peter. The rooster, the cock crows three times, denying him in just a few hours. Think about the rest of the disciples. They don't get off either. They... Jesus takes them with him to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he only asks one thing of them, and what is that to do? What, what, what does he ask them to do? Well, two things. Stay awake and what? Pray. Comes back how many times? Three times. You guys, I couldn't even get you to, to stay up and, and pray for me. I'm about to bear the sins of the world. These guys are going to fall asleep on him, but not only that, they're going to abandon him. Because it says that, the prophecy comes true that when the shepherd is struck down, the sheep scatter. They come to arrest Jesus, and everyone runs for the hills. See, these are men difficult to love. And here they are on the last night, the last hours of Jesus' life, and it says they have nothing to offer back to him. There's no reciprocal love here. But yet... It says, Jesus loved his own. Let me ask you this. How do you do, how do I do at loving people who can't love you back? How do you do at loving people who've hurt you? How do you do with loving people, quite frankly, who are just difficult to be around? You know, it's, it's easy or easier to love when there's reciprocity, when there's mutuality, when there's give and take. But boy, is it hard to love when that other person doesn't have anything in it for you. Boy, it's hard to love not knowing if you're going to get anything in return. 
Susan is reading a book right now by Bob Goff called Everybody Always. And it's about love and don't agree with every single thing in there theologically, but that's, that's not the point because the, 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 the central matter of it, I do recommend the book to you, by the way, is it holds up a model of love for us. Bob Goff had been ministering in Uganda. He's a lawyer by trade. And through his ministry in Uganda had learned that um, of this underground darkness in the Ugandan culture evolving around witch doctors. And this would be voodoo doctors. These would be despicable people who were never prosecuted, but they were often guilty of abducting children, sacrificing them, killing them. Um, it's all bound up in superstitions. It's, it's, it's a horrible plight. But Bob read about an eight-year-old boy who had been abducted, who had been horribly disfigured and mutilated, but had somehow survived. And Bob read about him and went to visit him. And it, you, you read through the book, it's just amazing. He ends up adopting this little boy named Charlie. And because he's a lawyer, he gets involved in the Ugandan judicial system and ends up locating the witch doctor who had done this thing. That's a man named Cobby. And Bob Goff says in his book, Cobby was the most evil man he had ever set eyes on. He was just the most despicable of all human beings. And by God's grace, he was able to prosecute this man and brought him to trial. He was stuck into prison, a life sentence. And then Bob went home feeling like justice had been done and love had been extended to Charlie. And as he adopted Charlie and he had surgical procedures to restore his body to make him whole, he was taken and on trips across the world and love was poured into him. And Charlie loved him back. But yet, Bob couldn't get out of his mind, Cobby, what does love look like for him. He began traveling to Uganda and visiting Kabi in prison. And this is the man, keep in mind, who had horribly disfigured his son, who had attempted to kill him and mutilate him, and his son who's in therapy and is going to have scars the rest of his life, and he began to share the gospel with Kabi. And read the book, it's, it's fascinating, Kabi becomes a Christian. And not only does Kabi become a Christian, Kabi starts preaching in prison, and other witch doctors start coming to Jesus. Now here's a question for you and me. Who is your Kabi? Who's your Kabi? See, on one hand, we want to commend him, Bob, for the love he demonstrated towards this poor orphan boy, and we do, and we do. And, and by the way, folks, we need to do more than that, more of that. Keep on doing that. You who are adopting and fostering, we need to do more of that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about who do you love when they can't love you back? Who do you love, how do you love when there's no guarantee of response. See, if we are having a problem with what I just said, loving our 
Kabi, we forget something that Jesus wants to show us in this last point. Who are you in the story? Are you Bob? Or are you Charlie? Or are you Kabi? Am I Kabi? Are we the disciples? Are we the ones who need the cleansing? Point number two. We were a broken and sinful group of guys, difficult to love. That was number one. But we were a broken and sinful group of guys, difficult to love. Now, this is amazing. Whom Jesus actually died for. Look at verse four. It says that Jesus rose up and he took off his garments. Now, this phrase, took off, it could also be used in the same context of this idea of laying down one's life. Okay, it's kind of, remember, John loves these metaphors. He loves these double entendres. He, he loves to, to, to mix and match. And he, it means some, this one thing, but it means another here. So it says, Jesus took off his outer garments. Now, it's impossible to, to know just how dramatic this was if you don't understand, again, context. No Jew could do this. In fact, the washing of feet was reserved specifically for Gentile servants and slaves. So Jesus strips bare. He literally gets down to his undergarments. He, he puts a towel around him, a long towel. Think about, think about a toga. Everything about his actions, everything about his dress communicates a lowly slave. You know, it's kind of like those episodes of Undercover Boss when the new employee comes and starts scrubbing toilets and you find out at the end that he's really the CEO and, and people are mortified, they're horrified. And this is what Peter says, look at the text. He says, will you wash my feet? No way, Jesus. The servant doesn't wash the master's feet. No way. You're my king. You're my Lord. We're going great places with you. We're, we're, man, we're right with you, Jesus, all the way to the top. And believe me, no Lord of mine, no king of mine is going to wash feet. Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. The word for part is literally inheritance. You have no spiritual bank account with me, Peter. You, you have no share of my eternal fortune. Of course, Peter doesn't understand this, the nuances of this, and he's like, well, wash all of me then. Jesus, and some of you with teenage boys are like, amen. This is your favorite passage at, at dinner time every night. Wash all of me. Jesus says, Peter, you don't need a bath. What you need is a cleansing. See, that word for wash, it has a double meaning. It could mean to wash as in make clean, soap, you know, hand sanitizer, all of those things, but it can also mean to purify, to cleanse. What is, what is Jesus saying? He says, Peter, you need a spiritual cleansing, but here's the problem. You can't provide it. 
You can't, you can't do this for yourself. For Oaks, you and I need a spiritual cleansing, and we cannot provide it. No matter how many times we go to church or how many deeds we do or hobbies we love, we, we can't cleanse ourselves. John says the most amazing thing. Look back in verses 1 and 2. John says, Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. His own, it's in the possessive. Remember John 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice. Jesus says, These are my sheep, my dirty, stinky, wandering sheep. And I'm going to love them to the end. To the end literally means love them to the last breath. Love them to the highest intensity. See, John is forecasting that Jesus' service doesn't just end here with foot washing. He carries it all the way to the cross. And here's what I find just personally incredibly encouraging for Oaks about this passage. As Peter and the disciples are recounting this night, and as they look back, they they now know what this night held. Their denials, their running, their fear, their unfaithfulness, the betrayals. But before any of that happened, and this is amazing, Jesus made an incredible pronouncement. And look back in verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now listen, and here's, here's, the, here's the double meaning. Jesus says, you are clean. See, before any of this happened, before desertions, before unfaithfulness, before wretchedness, before turning their back on Jesus, Jesus made a declaration, and he says, you are clean, except, except Judas, who doesn't want any part of me, but because you want a part of me, you are clean. And we may say, how in the world does that work? That doesn't seem even fair. That doesn't even seem like, whoa, I mean, how did, guys, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us while we were dead, while we didn't want anything to do with him, while we were Peter and John and these unfaithful men, Jesus said, I know you, you are my sheep, you are clean. Do you know that this morning? If you know Jesus Christ, you can go out this afternoon and you can absolutely blow it. What does unfaithfulness look like? Think about what unfaithfulness looks like for you. But Jesus says, you are clean. And, and uh, interesting, I think John, this John totally latches onto this evening. I think this, this resonates in John's heart and mind. Not only is he writing this 60 years later, but listen to what else John wrote 60 years later in his first epistle. And see if you don't hear the same language here. 1 John 1.9. This is just a great verse, one of my favorites in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
I wonder where John learned that. I wonder where John got that object lesson. I think he got it right here. See, when we turn to Jesus, when we confess our sins, Jesus says we have a seat at the table with him, just like his disciples. Wretched, unfaithful, struggling disciples, just like us, that we are clean, not because we have purified ourselves, but because Jesus has purified us on the cross. Do you know this Jesus? Are you clean? I can just hear the disciples. We were a pretty broken group of guys that were very difficult to love. But we were also a pretty broken group of guys that Jesus loved anyway by dying for us. That's the gospel. And because we've been made clean, John is going to to tell us next week what it means now to go serve as his ambassadors, his servants, and as his representatives. But today we end with this question, are you clean? I sure hope so. Trust in him.